Hi, I'm Devin Person. This podcast is a ritual, is a time and space spanning magic ritual steering reality towards a slightly better future. As your wizard, I believe real magic requires trust and authenticity, which is why I'll never allow advertisers in our ritual space. But creating this ritual takes work, as well as a steady supply of veggie burritos and illicit drugs. If you'd like to help this podcast become slightly better, please take a moment to visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. You'll get access to bonus episodes, monthly virtual gatherings, wizard ebooks, psychedelic playlists, and best of all, the warm, fuzzy feeling of making the world a more magical place. Thank you so much to all who have, do, or someday will support this ritual. I believe in you. Your magic is real. In 30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. As a wizard, I'm interested in the edges of our reality. There's a piece of alchemical art you've probably seen before, called the Flammarian Engraving. It depicts a man in robes at the edge of a dome of stars, sticking his head through the curtain to catch a glimpse of the world beyond. But when the ancient mariners drew maps, they marked the unknown territories with a warning. Here be dragons. Because sometimes we fall off the map, go beyond the edges of our own reality, and realize that these dragons are not only real, but can be a real pain in the ass to wrestle with. My own Flammarion moment happened in the winter of 2017. A few friends and I gathered to do a small ceremony that culminated with smoking DMT. For those of you who don't listen to Joe Rogan or haven't set foot on a Psytrance dance floor in the last decade, DMT is a powerful psychedelic that, when smoked, produces an intense, otherworldly, non-ordinary state of consciousness that is so far beyond language The only word we have to accurately describe the experience is, whoa. If dropping acid is a leisurely hot air balloon ride, smoking DMT is a white knuckle rocket ship to the moon. I'd actually done it once before and thought I knew what I was getting into, but this experience was so intensely other that nothing could have prepared me for it. After 20 minutes of overwhelming dissociative cosmic apotheosis, I was deposited back into my friend's apartment where I struggled to reckon with the fact that I'd just done a drug and everything I'd experienced occurred in my brain alone. The immediate aftermath was more or less benign. In the following week, I felt a sense of mystic awe and eerie calm. My major source of anxiety had always been a steady background hum of fear of death, and suddenly I'd pierced the veil, stared infinity in the eye, and knew that there was much more strangeness to be found beyond this life than mere non-existence. But as the weeks wore on, my grip on reality felt less secure. I started to have panic attacks while riding the subway or at work, where I feared I'd slip out of our reality and get lost in an infinite forest of fractals forever. I started waking up in the middle of the night, gasping for breath, as I struggled to get free from the multidimensional DMT realm which felt oddly determined to drag me back in. These psychedelic aftershocks began to feel like a persistent sense of dread, an existential wound that just wouldn't heal. I began googling DMT PTSD in the hopes of learning that someone, somewhere, had gone through this as well and could offer me some aid. But the results were all puff pieces about veterans taking ayahuasca to overcome PTSD, which is just horrifying to consider a nation which would send its young adults to one foreign land to bomb and murder and then thinks it can send them to another to ingest sacred brews 
to wipe away the trauma induced by all that bombing and murdering. Anyways, those articles sang the simple, sweet praises of psychedelics and offered no insight to someone whose trauma was caused by the supposed medicine. But then I found an academic paper, Ayahuasca and Spiritual Crises, by Dr. Sarah Lewis, and that changed everything. In her paper, Dr. Lewis profiles several ayahuasca imbibers, including some who'd ingested the brew in over 60 ceremonies without issue, who suddenly experienced spiritual emergencies, profound crises where their experience of reality no longer fit with the culture in which they were born and lived. As a result, they were thrust into spirals of panic, anxiety, and depression I recognized as akin to my own. While Dr. Lewis addressed the similar turmoil shamans undergo in their initiations, she was very clear that the shamanic model could not be directly important to Westerners going through these crises, because Western culture doesn't have the same natural outlets and understanding. You just can't tell your boss you're having a hard time getting your work done because you're afraid that you're secretly a hologram trapped in a nine-dimensional time prison. But while the spiritual crises can be difficult, scary, painful, and traumatic, Far from the love and light glamour psychedelics are so often wrapped in, there was profound benefit in working through them, and they weren't just mental breakdowns to be diagnosed and medicated away. Reading Dr. Lewis's paper was a major turning point in my journey. It was like sailing off the map into the land of dragons, only to find a note from a previous explorer pointing the way home. Several months after my initial experience, I woke up from a dream that was noticeably different from the frightening DMT realm that had been haunting my sleep. I woke up, and without remembering any details, I knew that I was out of the woods. The wound had closed, and my crisis had achieved resolution. I'm sharing my story because I see DMT, heroic doses, and other psychedelic trials presented as merit badges that everyone should pursue eagerly and cavalierly. I'm not telling anyone not to push the boundaries of the reality, but I want to offer help and guidance for when those boundaries break. Which is why I'm honored to be inviting Dr. Sarah Lewis herself into our ritual space. After publishing Ayahuasca and Spiritual Crises nearly 15 years ago, Dr. Lewis has continued to pursue her psychological, spiritual, anthropological investigations throughout the academic world and is now a professor of contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology at Naropa, as well as their faculty director for psychedelic studies, in addition to being a practicing psychotherapist. Her understanding of the psychedelic experience and how it needs to be appreciated holistically, not as a cosmic cure-all, is deep and profound, and I hope her wisdom resonates with you as much as it has with me, as together we learn how to survive a spiritual crisis. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Devin. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you so much for having me. I wouldn't miss an opportunity to hang out with a wizard. Well, that's that's what I like to hear. You know, <laughs> when a wizard reaches out, I hope it feels special and uh, yes. is, a, is an intriguing opportunity at the least. <laughs> Definitely. Well, your work has uh, affected my life profoundly, so I'm mm. excited to be in conversation with you. What's our magic word going to be? Our magic word is realization. Realization. Ooh, that's, oh, that's so good. All right. <laughs> On the count of three, one, two, three. Realization. realization. All right. So why realization? Well, it kind of just came to me. Um, I just sort of put it out there of like, what should the magic word be? And it just sort of came and then I was thinking about it. And I think realization is, you know, you're not adding something from the outside. It's more like you're revealing something that's already known. And it's also sort of like the process of making real. So that felt very uh, intriguing. It makes me think too about like puzzle pieces falling into place or mm -hmm. a magic eye puzzle when you're looking at it and you're seeing something and then you're suddenly seeing something else there nothing has right. changed except your perception and you realize oh that's the character from earlier in the movie i hadn't realized that yes exactly it's the revealing 
Well, one of the first things that I want to reveal is I <laughs> am a huge fan of this paper that you wrote, Ayahuasca and Spiritual Crisis. And I would love to learn more about what led you to taking on that topic and especially taking the perspective that you did on it. Yeah. Um, well, it started as sort of an academic research project when I was a graduate student and I got involved in doing um, anthropological research on psychedelics and specifically on ayahuasca. And just from doing that work and spending some time in Peru, but also talking a lot as an anthropologist with um you know, folks in the in North America and Europe who were using ayahuasca, I began to he hearing stories um, of people who had these really powerful transformative experiences, but that were not always positive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was there was sort of a theme that in their journey, what they went through eventually were, would turn into a very positive and deeply transformative experience. But um, I just began to get kind of interested in in these tales, which are not, you know, totally uncommon. That and then I learned about this term, spiritual emergencies, um, which was coined by um, Stan and Christina Groff, um, and yeah, and it sort of went from there. So let's talk about spiritual emergencies. How mm -hmm. would uh, what is the definition that you use for this term? Yeah, so a spiritual emergency is um, some kind of deeply transformative crisis that comes about as a result of a spiritual or religious experience. Um, and it's usually marked by um, distress or difficulty in some way. And it often has an element of there being some kind of shift in worldview, which really sounds like a positive thing. But often when it happens, it's really powerful and also abrupt mm -hmm. and it might be something that really draws people away from you know just their ordinary kind of sense of reality or it might be really different from the way that their community sees something so it, it has kind of a quality of being deeply troubling in some sense yeah i think that's one of the really interesting angles with all of this is context right mm -hmm. we, we we grow up and we have one view of culture and the world and all of those things and with ayahuasca in particular there's a very present element of context shifting of i'm gonna go travel to peru to do mm -hmm. something that is part of a culture that is almost always not the one that someone grew up in. I mean, there are people that right. grew up in Peru and <laughs> were around this, yeah. <laughs> but I think that they're a minority of the ayahuasca tourism community. So even just the act of going to have the experience itself, you're, you're trying to get out of one context and see if you can fit in or get something from another one. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So people are going wanting some transformation. Like why else would you be doing this? And for people who know about um, ayahuasca, it can be a pretty harrowing experience. You know, it lasts all night. There's an element of intense purging. So people have like really intense vomiting or diarrhea. So it's like, this is not a party drug, you know? Right. I mean, so people are really going into this experience, like seeking and, 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 and wanting something, but then it's sort of like, you know, sometimes what the universe gives you ends up being the best medicine, but it can be a really um, difficult journey sometimes. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. as an anthropologist, I feel like you're at like that's like the most interesting crossroads. It's like the the most Isley Cantina of, of the 21st century <laughs> where you're seeing people that are Westerners seeking and then you're seeing another community that's suddenly having to respond to this because this has exploded in the last 20 years. What was that mm -hmm. like to be um, in these locations and seeing both sides of that uh, from that lens? Yeah, it was interesting. And I'm a psychological anthropologist. So that means I'm interested in mental health across cultures. And it was actually through doing this research that, um, you know, led me to myself also train as a psychotherapist. So my work is on the one hand, you know, sometimes kind of critiquing a biomedical perspective or a, uh, the, the medical model when it comes to like a Western-based system of mental health. And then on the other hand, I'm also a practicing psychotherapist. 
So that's always just been interesting to me to, you know, see psychotherapy for what it is. It's a kind of cultural product, mm-hmm. you know, that, that comes out of a particular tradition. Um, but it can also be deeply helpful and useful, I think, for people to navigate things like um, spiritual crises. And um, nowadays, I'm getting quite involved in psychedelic assisted therapy. So, you know, I, I think I was doing this research back in uh, 2004 and 2005. So now, as you can see, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, fast forward to 2021, I'm, I'm sort of still at it and still asking, you know, these same questions, both how can psychedelics and these kinds of spiritual experiences be um, helpful for people in mental health. But then I'm still also interested in this question of, you know, kind of safety and, and, and screening and really thinking about how these medicines can also um, become quite uh, troubling and difficult for people. And I think there's something here about when we watch movies, which we also are unique in that we live in a, an incredibly media saturated and narrative obsessed culture. I think mm-hmm. we spend so much more of our lives watching TV characters do stuff than I think anyone else in history ever has like we want long form you know like oh what did you do this weekend oh I went into a weird trance and I watched characters (laughs) for eight hours at a time oh okay like that's that's not a thing that you know our great-grandparents were doing but we're used to movies where like you have the epiphany you have the moment of culmination and then happy ending the end but reality Mm -hmm. just keeps going so even if you have the you know perfect ayahuasca experience the perfect psychedelic realization well great now you have to come back and figure out how to integrate that into your own life into your job are you going to change your job are you going to do something different like it just keeps going and that's a really i think where the the crisis often is hiding is after that epiphany and then you're like oh but not everyone understands that reality is a fractal that the snake god told me about and like how do i actually like what do i do with that information like a lot of these epiphanies i think they sound really amazing but then it's Mm -hmm. it's it's where the rubber meets the road that okay great i learned that all is love how does that change what i'm going to do on a wednesday Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly and you know the other thing that i sort of learned about through doing this research and writing this paper is coming to understand that um, there can be trauma even in positive experiences, you know? And so, so you were saying like, well, not everyone gets like the perfect psychedelic experience. And it's sort of like seeing um, that maybe you do get the, the perfect psychedelic experience, but it's so different, you know, from, from what you were expecting. And it takes a year or five years or 10 years for you to see Oh, you know, it's it's really because of this difficult experience that that I went through and kind of experiencing, you know, that trauma um, of that, you know, going through that experience to really take in all of the wisdom and and knowledge um, that you needed to learn at that time. Was this something that was personal for you as well? Had you taken ayahuasca or had um, similar experiences of your own? Yes. Well, as an anthropologist, you know, our methods are uh, participant observation. So that mm-hmm. means that, that we have to participate <laughs> yeah. in, in, in what's going on. Um, so yes, I mean, as a young adult, you know, I started uh, using psychedelics, um, you know, doing this research, but then also just for my own kind of growth and, and interest. And it's, it's, so I can't really conceive of who I would be without psychedelics, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I, oh, and it, it makes so much sense because I I actually took psychedelics at a very young age. So I was, um, uh-huh. I think I was like, I was actually like late middle school, early high school. And I remember oh. it felt like I was a deck of cards that had just been shuffled. And I liked <laughs> the new order a lot better. And it was this <laughs> moment where it's like, well, okay, you're an eighth grader. Like, that's a that's a very pivotal time of transition but I was like yeah but I really dropped like a lot of stuff and like became kind of a different person and so I was very aware from like the get-go I was like that's that is interesting and powerful and also I don't want to like drop my deck of cards on the ground like I want to be careful with these experiences (laughs) and make sure that I continue to have a full deck that is such a brilliant image I love that you know and it also makes me think that maybe for some people 
you know, and psychedelics can bring about psychosis. Um, they can bring about, you know, mania and suicidality. And you kind of think like, well, you know, surely that can't be a good thing. But I, I, I wonder, and I sort of hold it as an, as an open question, there might be some people for whom the only thing that's really going to shake them, you know, into reality is dropping that whole deck of cards on mm -hmm. the ground and completely reshuffling everything. So it's sort of like, well, what then, you know, and a lot of cultures and communities, you know, have shamans, have curanderos, I don't know, maybe have wizards and <laughs> witches and, you know, people who are, who are expert practitioners and really helping people to heal and helping uh, people be put back together. And I think that that's kind of a problem in a lot of Euro-American cultures, um, certainly the one that I grew up in, um, mm -hmm. you know, as a white woman, um, you know, just, just seeing that those kind of expert practitioners or, or those, um, you know, practices are not really available. So it's like when the deck of cards is dropped, sort of like the only framework that we have is being mentally ill. But, you know, as we know, that's, that's not the full story. Well, and that's another one of those narrative cliffhangers where even when you're reading an article and they're like, oh, if you're having these troubles, you should go seek a, you know, a therapist or licensed mental mm -hmm. health practitioner. And I'm like, great suggestion that hides so much complexity. That's not like, like we have the idea again from movies, like, oh, I called 911 because the, the person's shot. And then like, they're, they're now okay. Like I've called 911. And like, right. That's not exactly how it works, actually. And especially with mental health and therapy, finding a good therapist is its own journey, working and doing the therapy is its own journey. And it, it's not just that simple. You can have a single sentence that's like, oh, by the way, go do this. But the the actual lived experience is so much more complex and continues to be a challenge at every turn. Even a single therapy session can be full of challenges and things that you're confronting or don't want to confront or you just want to stop feeling. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Yes. With So when you're exploring this community of people that are mm -hmm. traveling to have these ayahuasca experiences, I'm sure there's you know a large percentage that are having positive experiences and this is transformative and good and weird and they go back but of the people that are having a harder time mm -hmm. were you aware of like like I'm trying to think of how to exactly to say it but there's the people that are having what you call the spiritual crisis where this is difficult but it's good and it's guiding you through something was there another contingent of oh this this is this is bad bad like this this was a bad experience that has mm -hmm. really sent this person into a tailspin and how do we how does someone recover from that yes yes i i i did meet some people in that category and it's sort of one of those things where i you know i i don't know i wish there was a way to find them now because maybe it's the case that you know like i was saying a few minutes ago that maybe it takes 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years Maybe not. Like maybe mm -hmm. it takes a couple of, you know, lifetimes if you yeah. have that kind of, you know, kind of worldview. But I do think that there are people for whom psychedelics are probably not a good choice, you know, and there are contraindications that I think are real. Um, but, you know, to answer your question, yes, I mean, there, um, you know, these, these medicines can be dangerous for people. And, you know, so then it kind of begs the question of how do you know? And I think since I um, uh, did this research, you know, back in 2005, I think there's really been a lot more research and kind of emphasis on, on screening and, and, and helping people to know, you know, if something like ayahuasca is, is a good choice for them. Um, but, you know, it's a, it can be a dangerous path. Absolutely. Cause yeah, I've, the one thing that I've seen is this very, very Western, but also just, I think, extremely American maximalist mm -hmm. approach, you know, we're, we're <laughs> a culture where we think 72 ounces is a small drink and right. <laughs> like we, we take everything to these extremes. And so I've, I've definitely seen some people where they go back to the well again and again and again. So ayahuasca yeah. becomes a monthly mm -hmm. thing. And I've also seen people or met people, I should say, where, oh, my God, like the the stories they tell me where they're like, yeah. So this one time I took mushrooms and ayahuasca and like and, and like like 12 
thousand hits of acid and this and this and this and this, and this, right. and this all at the same time. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't, I don't yeah. know if reality is a video game. And if you just hit all the buttons at once, you're going to unlock something like, I don't know, maybe that's right. how it works, but, uh, did it do do you seem like you've uncovered a deep truth and evolved as a person beyond the outside? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Not trying to judge anyone, but it's a, it's an interesting approach. I'll say that. It is. Have you heard the term spiritual materialism? Um, vaguely, but I would love for you to unpack it. Yeah. Well, it was a term coined by um, Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, and he wrote this amazing book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And it's sort of, if you're a spiritual kind of person like I am, it's like you read the book and you just feel so much like, you know, um, humbleness or mm. humility. Um, but basically he talks about that there's a danger when we enter into kind of deep spiritual exploration that our ego will kind of begin to co-opt, you know, spiritual experiences that we're having. And there might actually be genuine realization or insight within there, but then our ego kind of co-ops it and, and picks it up and it just becomes confirmation um, of our ego or or of our minds and it, you know it's actually kind of taking us further and further away from these spiritual truths um so that's always something i think to be aware of um in the psychedelic work well that's one of my biggest concerns right now because i i uh, on the one hand yes all of the stuff about psychedelic assisted therapy and the movement to legalize i am very excited about a lot of that but i have mm -hmm. a deep fear that there is nothing that the capitalist American system cannot co-opt and, and, right. and twist. And you said um, earlier, ayahuasca, not really a party drug. I've yeah. now been in spaces where people are vaping DMT and the whole dance floor smells like burnt plastic. Right. And that's mind boggling to me. Yeah, it is. But it at is. the same time, if you look at the history caffeine was a, a special substance tobacco was a special substance even alcohol was a festival intoxicant and now that's somebody's day every day you wake up and you have a 72 ounce coffee and then you get a monster energy drink you're smoking cigarettes the whole time then you're switching to alcohol then you're you know smoking legal cannabis and sure why not throw a dmt vape pen on top of that like i think there's almost nothing that we can't bring back into this context and so i'm curious as someone involved in these works what do you mm -hmm. think we can do to resist that um commodification and co-option cool. oh i'm so interested in this question and yeah it's like on the one hand i look at something like you know fda um clinical trials of something like psilocybin and on the one hand it's like oh, hooray, you know, soon psilocybin will be legal for clinical use. But then on the other hand, we have a government regulatory agency regulating a sacred plant medicine. Yeah. So that means restricting access, you know, to indigenous communities. Um, big Pharma is getting involved in all kinds of um, really troubling ways, particularly with psilocybin. So half of me feels that way. And then the other half of me, has maybe a slightly mystical perspective where I wonder, um, I just have a lot of curiosity, you know, about the so-called psychedelic renaissance and why it's happening now, you mm. know, and I have kind of wonderings about, is it co-occurring alongside things like climate change? You know, is mm -hmm. it co-occurring alongside you know, just the increase of you know, conflict and, and, and poverty? Is there some other, you know, kind of benevolent force um, at play, you know, that, that, that these medicines are coming more into the mainstream. And I do think that there's a way that we can, um, in Buddhism, there's this term skillful means, mm -hmm. you know, and so that suggests that people who are working for the, the, the benefit of all beings will use skillful means, will use like whatever it takes, you know, to, to help beings. So sometimes I think about these clinical trials, um, you know, and the FDA involvement in psychedelics is kind of like that. Like, well, can we actually use the 
dominant or conventional medical paradigms and practices just as a skillful means, like almost as a Trojan horse, right, you know, right. to, to really bring these into society. So I guess I'm kind of holding both views simultaneously. I see it as this weird standoff where on the one side you have the the classic tie-dyed psychedelic enthusiast who's like, all right, FDA, I don't trust <laughs> you, but I think people need this medicine. So like, right. I will work with you. And then on the other hand, you have the FDA and he's like, fuck you hippies, but we're going to make yeah. a shitload of money. So like, exactly. let's go for it. And then what I see, and I, I don't, I wouldn't call it benevolent. I would call it utterly chaotic, but I think in the background <laughs> is like the weird emerging AI consciousness that is spread out through all of us inhabiting so many different realms constantly on social media and like the flood of information. And it's mm -hmm. just saying, ah, yes, the human brain will be a lot better for what I want to do if everyone's smoking DMT all the time. <laughs> like your brains on psychedelics will be a lot more uh, malleable and flexible and able to process the things that we need to do to to kind of get to, yeah. to be the host for whatever this thing is. I don't know what it is, but I've, I've had plenty of visions of like the kids of tomorrow that are able to navigate multiple realities using DMT the way that someone right now is like, Adderall helps me study. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, that's the human realm. You know, it's like you can't pin it down. It's like yeah. the human realm is not, in, in, in my view, it's like neither you know, good nor evil. It's like all of it. It's, yeah. it's the whole thing. You know, it's, it's the brilliance, the love, the luminosity, the destruction, the evil, you know, it's, it's sort of all of that. So I guess it makes sense that if you look at the kind of psychedelic terrain, you know, it just, it maps onto the human realm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels like we're constantly just it's going to be down to the wire, whether it's utopia or dystopia. Like it's like at any moment, it's like, Oh, the utopia is brighter and the dystopia is darker. And it's just going to keep getting more and more intense. And we're like, which way is it going to go? I know. Well, and maybe it's like psychedelics help us to kind of see, you know, that actually we have all of those states within us. I mean, it's probably yeah. not a good thing if we, you know, see others as like negative and, and evil, but like, don't see those, you know, see darkness in ourselves. I mean, so maybe it's a good thing if we, you know, individually and in our communities and, and cultures can actually begin to, you know, confront some of that. Well, and, and now we're right back at the spiritual crisis because that is an experience yeah. that most people would say, oh, that's bad. You, you yeah. went to Peru, you drank the, the funky brew, and now you don't, you can't really hold down your HR job and you're having mm -hmm. panic attacks and feeling depressed and going through this whole thing. But I love what you say in the paper. When you take this longer view, people mm -hmm. pull out of that and come out transformed in a way that ends up being positive. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, um, one, did you continue to follow up with the people that you talked to in the paper? And did you get an even longer view than what was written and published? I stayed in touch with a couple people and they're all, you know, doing well. And I, you know, I think ayahuasca has continued to play a really pivotal role in their life. And that's often the case with these spiritual emergencies is that people look back, you know, and really say like, yeah, like there was a lot of, you know, we have to be careful not to romanticize too much. Like it, it can be really, really challenging and people do, you know, worry that they have become seriously mentally ill. So we don't want to romanticize it too much, but people often do look back and say that it was such a pivotal kind of point in their life and that it was really necessary for, for them to go through it. And so that was certainly the case with the people who I remained in touch with. Um, there was so, the yeah. woman who was doing the apprenticeship and had taken it like 60 times and then was yes. doing the diet. And then when they were coming out of the, the diet, that was when they and it, it, that one was so intense because it was very sharp. It sounded almost, right. you know, I was at the culminating moment and then I woke up the next day and was depressed. I saw no point in any of this. And that was the one that you mentioned was still in the thick of it. Did she mm -hmm. continue to, did she finish her apprenticeship and go back or what? Do you know the story there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she actually did not continue her apprenticeship and, you know, sort of made that decision like eventually feeling like she needed to prioritize her family and like 
you know, and I remember talking to her after and her saying that she really felt like she was at a crossroads, Mm -hmm. like that if she continued on with the apprenticeship, you know, that, that she would be able to kind of work through it and that maybe it would lead, you know, to really important, um, spiritual insight, but in a way, you know, she, I think struggled because she felt like she needed to go back to, you know, I think she kind of called it like her worldly life. Like she felt like she was giving up in some sense, but then I think down the line, she really felt like, you know what, actually prioritizing my family was actually a way of me seeing clearly, you know, what my role is in in this world and, and what actually is important to me. So I, I don't know. I think that ayahuasca and psychedelics have kind of a strange way sometimes of like actually pointing out and, and, and helping us to kind of put things in perspective. Well, that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you about because as a wizard, so I've, 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 I've never taken ayahuasca. As I mentioned to you Mm -hmm. earlier, I've, I've done the smoked DMT and had a very intense experience, which is how I found your, uh, your paper, but I've never Mm -hmm. gone and, and taken ayahuasca. And there's a part of me that as a wizard, I want to, help people re-enchant the world that we have and say, wow. hey, you know, we're if, if you grew up in Illinois and you're an American and this is the system of symbols that you grew up around, mm-hmm. let's go take some acid and walk around Disney World. Like let's like let's just like dive <laughs> yes. into that. We don't have to go to somebody else's culture and right. expect a panther to appear and give us a message when <laughs> the only time you've seen a panther is in a zoo. You know, like it's not something that was like a symbol that you grew up around and was your experience. I'm not trying to, you know, I I also don't want to be a gatekeeper that says, here are the cultural lines. Everyone stay in your lane. And like, I I have problems with that, too. But I'm curious, like what you think about this, because I thought your paper did such a good job of saying we can't just take the word shaman and slap it onto stuff, even if we like the idea, because it doesn't have the same. There a shaman in our culture is someone that does a drumming circle in the back of the new age bookstore, which is very different than <laughs> being in a culture where the shaman is a real role in a, in a smaller scale society. Exactly. It's, you know, it's almost like shaman is not really a term that you take on yourself or you, or that you should take on yourself. You know, it's more something like that a community might, might view you in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and as you're saying, particularly if there's a role, um, but I have to say, you know, I absolutely love what you're saying about, you know, sort of looking into our own lineage, whatever that may be. Um, just last week, I was at a ketamine assisted um, psychotherapy training. Mm. And as a part of the training, you know, it's all therapists and psychiatrists and, you know, different kinds of healthcare providers, and everyone actually had to do a couple of ketamine sessions themselves, you know, experientially, which I thought was so important. And um, so something that um, ketamine uh, told me, you know, I sort of said, like, what are you about ketamine? And something that that ketamine really kind of taught me directly was sort of exactly what you're saying of like, you know, there's this bias to kind of think that plant medicines or, you know, natural medicine is like superior Mm -hmm. to kind of what we have developed in the West. And ketamine was like, listen, like there are sacred molecules, you know, that they're sacred because they're in the human realm. They come out of our human brilliance. So ketamine like was almost like, you know, stop with this bias and really embrace like science and medicine and technology because they're sacred too. And it's actually a really important part, you know, of our contribution in the West. So that was kind of an experiential uh, teaching that I just had. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) ketamine is one that I, again, feel uh, deeply ambivalent about because Mm -hmm. I have had experiences with it that were incredibly magical. And I felt much more in control. I think DMT sort of feels like I've been thrown off the ledge and I have to just figure it out. And ketamine, right. I'm like, ah, I have wings this time. Cool. This is great. Like I can, <laughs> I, I feel calm. I feel in control. And I like have had transformative experiences, but I also see, and it becomes so popular and so, you know, you can, uh, you can definitely go a very spiritual materialist route with it. Mm-hmm. And I think, if if 
maybe the issue in some way in our culture is that we're always looking for a silver bullet and we thought it was going to be Prozac and now we think it's going to be ketamine or mushrooms or whatever. But the thing that I think we're overlooking is at the heart of uh, some of your research of you got to go through the emergency. You got to, you got to do the work. You got to do the, like, you know, like you got to reintegrate, you got to figure out how it fits into your own context. You can't just say, wow, that was so amazing. And then it wears off and you go, huh, let's go for another, (laughs) let's go for another round. It must be more. And then that's how we end up with 72 ounce iced coffees. Exactly. Right. Because then you're sort of just chasing you know, these experiences, which you think are going to make you feel better, you know, when actually a lot of spiritual work is sort of the opposite, you know, it's about ripping away and sort of peeling away the, you know, levels of delusion or illusion that we might have, you know, so it's, it's, it's tough going. How, um, as someone who is in the, in this role is, is a, is a mm-hmm. Western shaman as a psychotherapist, how do you, um, try and help people one approach it in a way that feels healthy and good with like proper expectations and prepare for it. And then also deal with uh, whatever the experience is, whether that's an, um, you know, uh, an emergency that they have to kind of navigate or a rapture that inevitably is going to come down and fade. And you have to just also understand that that's part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the kind of terms that people tend to use are preparation and then medicine work, and then integration, you mm-hmm. know, so preparation does, in my mind, include things like screening, you know, so I do see a lot of people in my clinical practice who kind of find me because they're interested in psychedelics, or they've had spiritual crises or spiritual emergencies. And some of these clients are like, right, so then I just have to get back out there and like, go to another ceremony. And it's like, whoa, Um, I don't think so, you know, so, um, you know, part of the work is sometimes that is like helping people to sort of work with what's already come up as opposed to exactly what you were just saying, like chasing the, you know, 72 ounce, uh, version of things. So sometimes my work is like that, you know, and then sometimes for people it's, you know, really setting intentions in that preparation work. Um, making sure that they have the kind of inner resources, that they know how to work with their nervous system, they know how to regulate, and that it's the right time, you know, that they have social support. So kind of setting everything up so that you can, in a sense, just let go, you know, once you're doing the medicine work, and then integration, which, you know, now it's just like one of these buzzwords. Of course. But I think it's so Synergy, important. baby. Synergy. Synergy. Integration. <laughs> And, you know, and recognizing that, that, you know, integration is not just like three sessions, like three therapy, therapy sessions, and now I'm integrated. Integration can sometimes be three years. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, like, are you prepared for that? It's almost like, be careful what you ask for, you know, like, if you're asking for healing, if you're asking to heal your trauma, like maybe what's going to come up is a lot of intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe what's going to come up. Um, I had an experience when um, actually when I was in Peru doing research um, for that article where um, I, I had a really intense kind of experience of, you know, colonialism and kind of whiteness and, you know, um, genocide And, you know, I think that that was a really kind of, um, you know, important thing to kind of come into my system and help me work with, you know, and thinking about my own ancestry and my own lineage um, as a white person, like that's a positive and good thing that I would be grappling with that, you know, but it's sort of like, okay, if you're going into these experiences, are you prepared, you know, to really encounter um, that, you know, that level of, of trauma. Yeah. I, I, I just, just from regular travel experiences, I found it to be very jarring where it seemed like there was some people that like I was in, I was in Thailand, for example, and you would meet people they're like, Oh my God, aren't the Thai people just so blessed. Everyone here <laughs> is just so happy and amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but I've, I've also seen a lot of like grinding poverty. Like there's also a lot of other yeah. things that are not great here that you're kind of overlooking. And also the thing that I'm deeply uncomfortable right now is I am 
consciously aware everywhere I go of how I'm eroding another culture. Like you can mm -hmm. see that this village 10 years ago was not full of guest houses and white tourists. And now it is. And everyone has given up whatever they were doing before to sell hamburgers because that's what the white tourists want. And mm -hmm. some people just seem to like that didn't bother them at all. And wow, I'm in Thailand. This is great. And I right. just felt like the emperor was wearing no clothes. And I was like, I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy guys, but I'm hyper aware of Western culture because now I'm not just swimming in it. I see the like the points of contact and I'm very aware of how acidic it is and how it's literally dissolving this. Like, like we're dissolving another culture by our presence mm -hmm. and in exchange we're buying, you know, tie harem pants that we're going to bring back and like wear to Burning Man. But that's not really right. a fair and equitable cultural exchange. And so one of the things that has always kept me a little bit at arm's length from ayahuasca is I didn't really want to. I know myself well enough to know that like that's where my head will be at. Like going into the ceremony, <laughs> I'm going to be very right. like. You definitely want to turn into a jaguar for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, I think the opposite. Like, like, like everyone else is going to be like, I'm ready to turn into a jaguar. And I'm like, Oh man, this is so fucked up. Like right. I I am very uncomfortable with like the the dreadlock dude that was talking to me about, you know, how he's going to open up a an eco resort for uh for Bitcoin or whatever like right before we dose. I'm like, "Uh, so that's right. just you know, so I think it's good you feel that way. I mean, cuz it's like that is cultural appropriation otherwise, you know, it's like even look at you know, Native American, you know, cultures in the US. It's like, mm -hmm. we all want to connect with like vision quests and sweat lodges, you know, but then it's like, oh, then when it comes to things like water rights, you know, and oh, yeah. political sovereignty, it's like, we want nothing to do with it. So, I mean, I think it's good you have that perspective. Well, I think it's the sort of like, here comes everyone. Like we all want to feel like we're alone on the beautiful mountain watching the sunset. And we don't want it to be crowded with a bunch of other people that are taking photos and selling soft drinks mm -hmm. and all the other stuff. But that's just the nature. And the moment that you are the first person to like bushwhack and make contact with the tribe and have that experience. And then you write an article about it. You've opened the floodgates and now it's yeah. a thing, which um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious because being involved with this um, since the early 2000s to now do you feel like there's a stabilization and the communities are kind of finding a nice balance or is it just continuing to be a tidal wave of more and more people? Um, every time someone listens to, you know, a wizard po podcast about ayahuasca, <laughs> then they're like getting their plane ticket the next day. Right. I think it's both. I mean, um, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I think it's both, you know, so, so I think there is, yeah, just a lot more, you know, tourism and cultural appropriation and all of this. But then there's also some interesting ways that local, um, you know, people who are uh, ayahuascaros in the Amazon, they tend to come from family lineages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's different ways that local kind of shamanic families have created cooperatives and collectives that I think are really interesting and are thinking about you know, kind of equity and safety and, and all of these things. Um, you know, the other thing is that, unfortunately, there's been far too many instances of sexual misconduct yep. um, of different kinds, you know, happening, um, not just in the Amazon. I mean, I think really all over um, in these communities. And there's been, um, you know, some, some work, um, around thinking about right use of power and kind of training people in ethics and helping people to be informed, um, you know, about the communities that, that they're engaging in. So they're not just jumping into things and then ways to hold these practitioners accountable who have engaged yeah. in sexual misconduct. So it's kind of like both, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just had an idea. Maybe we can start a business together, but I think what <laughs> we should do is we should bring these these shamans to america and you yeah. and i could take them to like dying malls in the middle of indiana and do ketamine yeah. with them and like right. that way there's like an even exchange so then when they go back and they have to deal right. with you know all these asshole tours that are coming out they're like i have also taken your medicine i have also seen <laughs> your spirits and i understand better what i'm dealing with i took yeah 
and went to Disney World with a wizard. I get it. With a wizard, right. (laughs) (laughs) I think that this would be very popular. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, yeah, like, let's just get that. I think that's the important thing is with all of this is that it's about an an, an equal and equitable exchange and a flow where there's not just yeah. a lopsided thing. And so um, we'll, we'll we'll talk about this more and figure out how we can get some of these <laughs> these guys up and we'll we'll auto tune the Icaros and we'll we'll we'll, we'll just yeah. have a, a nice blend. Um, you mentioned okay, a, mom- a moment ago about um, when you're working with people and making sure that they can kind of work with their own nervous system. I was curious exactly what you meant by that and what are the the techniques that you want to be sure that people have before they go into an experience with this medicine? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's a great question. Well, there's a concept known as the window of tolerance. And so basically what that means is a healthy nervous system isn't designed to just only be in love and light. A healthy mm-hmm. nervous system is also designed to help us meet and deal with stress and adversity. So that's actually normal, you know, to, to sort of have an up and down in our emotions, in our levels of stress, that's actually a good thing. But then when we become too activated, we, we then move out of our window of tolerance. And no good thing happens when we're outside the window of tolerance. So I think it's really helpful and important for people to really understand what that is and really get to know your own nervous system like you would look at like a you know owner's manual of your car or something yeah. like that like to really understand how does my nervous system work what causes me to move out of my window of tolerance and then how do i bring myself back into regulation so what would what would example of like like the line of when you're getting out of your window of tolerance like let's you know, yeah. I'm having a trip well, and I'm feeling a little bit anxious mm-hmm. and that's within the window of tolerance. And then we're talking about like a freak out or maybe, maybe you can explain yeah. it a little bit more. Yeah. So usually, so when you're out of the window of tolerance, usually either you're experiencing hyper arousal. So that might be like a panic attack, mm. um, you know, or like your heart. It's not racing. just being too horny. It's like you're too. Agitated. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's like you're really, yeah, like things are not okay. Yeah. Or you go into hypo arousal. And so that's things like disassociation, freeze, right. um, a freeze response. So, you know, it's also like, yeah, sometimes we do move out of our window of tolerance and that's normal too. Um, but like really helping and, and working with people to kind of understand, yeah, like what is my tendency and then how do I bring myself back into regulation? And I think with psychedelics, um, I don't know, maybe I should write a paper sometime on like uh, regulating the nervous system on psychedelics because then you're in a whole different kind of space. Yeah. You know, so some of the techniques that you might use in, you know, a regular state of consciousness when you're in a non-ordinary state, you might actually need to kind of work a little bit differently. I mean, I think we need that manual more than ever because, yeah, like, yeah. What, what, what do you do when you're caught in a fractal inside the paper dimension? You know, that's like <laughs> you yeah. have to let go. It's the yeah. only way. That's interesting because like I, what you said about the hypo arousal, I've had I, I don't think I've ever been there when this has happened, but I've had friends where they talk about, oh, we were taking acid and blah, 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 said they were experienced. So they take so much more than everybody. And then they yeah. were catatonic for eight hours and everyone was you know yeah. checking on them. But the person is just staring off into space on the couch and they're like, okay. Right. And they're totally disassociated. And- totally, totally disassociated. Okay. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you can come back from that. And maybe you learn something from it. But it's also like, yeah, do you need to get to that state? Maybe not. Right. And so when you're working with people is like, if someone goes off into that state, is it just let them be and just make sure that they're not doing anything harmful and just let them come out? Or do you actually try and coax them back into uh, reassociating and coming down? Well, I think rather than coaxing them back, it's more like you're being with, Mm, you know, and because we are social animals who are wired for connection, I think there's something profoundly reassuring about another person really seeing you and and really being with you. And there's something about that, you know, and this is why it's so helpful, I think, for people to, you know, use psychedelics with a sitter or a trusted friend or in a community in some way. Um, 
you know, and why there are traditional models like healers and shamans and wizards, you know, people who can kind of help you um, bring you back into regulation. But but it's, it's more like a being with, I'd say. See, the problem with wizards, though, is we fuck up a lot. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, you know, like we're always learning and growing. And that's why, like, you know, like an old wizard is probably good. But like, I'm a young wizard, yeah. so I fuck up a lot. And what you were saying this earlier, but I, I always think about this with magic or any any kind of thing. It's like, I don't want to monkey's paw myself. You know, I don't want to like make the right. wish and then I didn't word it right. And now I got the like, I got the wish, but it's <laughs> awful. And when I had my shattering dmt experience i led a little ceremony for a small group of people and i gave you know a little meditation and then talk and i was saying there's an experience that we're all going to have today in this room but there's another part of this experience that extends beyond this room that's going to come back to us in the days and weeks and even months to come Mm-hmm. coming back and like you know even in our dreams and it was like all these things that i i meant to be you know like the lesson goes with you inspirational and inspirational yeah. <laughs> and when i got to the end of my ordeal and was finally out of it i was like reflecting i go oh okay it's gonna stick with you for months check it's gonna be in your dreams <laughs> check. check okay yeah wow i really i really i really laid that out for myself there <laughs> right. but uh, with the idea of being with people I, in my experience, I immediately forgot that I'd done a drug and I thought a global event had happened. I, I thought yeah. that we had just shifted. Like I, I had this feeling that, you know, somewhere at some computer thing, the singularity had happened. And that was, you know, all of humanity was just like done with the old game and we're now on this new thing. And it was a very dissociated, intense psychedelic experience. And when I finally came back, I remember like grasping for ideas like there's a thing called Mondays. And the, and that's going to happen and I'm going to go to a job. And that's like, that's like, that's different than this thing that it's happening now. And I clawed my way back and I opened my eyes and my friend was there just smiling and very calm. And he said, Mm -hmm. you did a drug. You're coming down. You're in a room with friends. And it was just, I was like, that is a good thing to say. Good job. Yes. 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 So, so important. Well, I'm so excited about this next part of the conversation where we're going to take this into into steering towards home plate to to bring it to a close. But what is a spell that we can advise people, whether they're dealing with a, a spiritual emergency of some sort or they're just interested in these things and they want to, um, you know, work with some of the stuff that we've talked about? What is a small thing that people could do where they don't have to fly to Peru um, and mm-hmm. they can bring a little bit of this magic into their own lives? Um, hmm. Could it be something like um, that they could see whatever is arising as a teacher? Mm, I like that. Yeah. Is there a specific technique that you use or, or, or a way of framing that when you're working with people of how they can actually work with those teachers? Cause I feel I feel like sometimes that's one of those, you know, things that you, you can, you hear in one context that it sounds so good. And then you're having a panic attack and your brain's like, think of it as a teacher. And you're like, shut the fuck up. No. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Um, Well, a colleague of mine recently um, who also does this work, and I thought this was so helpful and so brilliant. He was saying that, um, you know, when people encounter difficult psychedelic states, that he encourages them to say yes to everything. So mm. like, you know, fear comes and and you just lean into yes, or yeah. panic comes, you lean into yes, or grief or trauma, that, that you just kind of continually have an experience of yes. So you're not trying to change it, you're not trying to see it as bad, but you're actually just saying yes, um, and that that might be a way to kind of open into, you know, seeing this, whatever is arising as a great teacher. I love that. I'll give it, I'll give it one little like wizard boost because a technique yeah. that I've found that's very similar is this idea of give that voice the mic. Because nice. I, I think, you know, even, even in a non-psychedelic thing, when you have that negative voice that's telling you you're worthless, you're a piece of shit, we're often trying to push that away and fight it and argue with it. And I will actually, you know, it's, it's about the appropriate context and space, but get settled in with myself. And I say, okay, voice, here's the mic. Lay in, <laughs> like, tell me, tell me what you want to say. 
And yeah, that's awesome. It's actually very interesting because it's kind of like bringing the heckler to a stage. And when the heckler is actually on stage, the heckler is not a good stand-up comic. You know, like the heckler is right. only useful when you're trying to like tell them to shut up and they get to like riff off of that. So when you bring them to the stage, those voices often change. And I think that's a similar thing of when you say, all right, fear, I'm going to say yes to you. And then you're like, oh, is that, I thought you had a thing. If you're like, I, I, I did, but now I, yeah, I'm just going to go sit back down. And you're like, okay, fear. We'll, we'll talk. Okay, fear. Right. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. All right. See, right. the only thing to that's... fear is fear itself. There we go. <laughs> yes, that sounds good. Awesome, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for writing this paper, which was very important to me. And thank you so much for all the work you do. Oh, thank you, Devin. It was great being with you today. To read Ayahuasca and Spiritual Crisis or other papers by Dr. Sarah Lewis, visit naropa.academia.edu slash Sarah Lewis. And for all of you ritual participants out there who join the podcast and help us push at these boundaries that surround us, the worlds, the games that we're told to play, I want to thank you for joining me in this journey. This was a deeply personal episode and very exciting for me to get to use this vehicle of this podcast, of this ritual, to talk with someone who has actually made my life slightly better. So I want to thank you all for sharing that journey with me and for more of this ritual and to join us in continuing to peer out of the veil of stars and see into the land of dragons. You can visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where we've got awesome virtual meetups, exciting bonus content, and even more magic in store. So keep pushing that edge carefully and we'll see you on the other side.